All right, welcome back in to the Royals Review Radio Podcast. My name is Alex Duvall. I'm joined, as always, by Jeremy Greco. Jeremy, how are we doing? We're doing. Things Things are happening. Progress is allegedly being made. It is. Allegedly is a good word there. I think I did see something about the DH that maybe – we'll come back to that in just a second. I'm joined also tonight. Uh, by Max Reaper, the editor of Royals Review, and Sean Newkirk, who is a regular contributor, been on the podcast several times. Gentlemen, how are we doing? I know there's a lot of snow on the ground where we are, but uh, how are we doing? Cold. I'm doing good, Alex. I'm I'm a little disappointed that, that schools have been already been canceled for Thursday. My kids had a, they had a day off for Friday already, so that's a five day mm. weekend with the kids. <laughs> and I've got a lot of work this week too, so I don't know what I'm going to do. I, as a teacher, am not disappointed that schools have been canceled. I know we, we still have to like, you know, they call what they call them AMI days. So technically we have to work. But as I mentioned last night on the Royals Farm Report podcast, there is a massive difference between working and going to work. So as much work as I'm doing, I have appreciative of not having to go to work here for a few days. Um, speaking of working and not going to work, Major League Baseball is not working right now. The owners have locked out the players. Um, this applies only to players on the 40-man roster. So even if we do miss big league time, the only thing that matters is Bobby Witt Jr. will not be affected by this. So on April, what is it, 6th, when AAA season begins, Bobby Witt Jr. will be playing baseball whether the big league teams decide to show up or not. So that is the silver lining in all of this. Uh, John Heyman reported today that both sides agreed to the universal DH, which I'm a big fan of. Um, I also thought it was funny. He mentioned that both sides had like different reasons for wanting the universal DH and that like somehow that was a hang up about why. And even though they both wanted it, I thought that was like a funny comment to add in there, but it does look like we'll have a universal DH. Max, you tweeted earlier, this could create some extra opportunities for Carlos Santana because now it opens up the other half of the league for um, players like Carlos Santana. So I want to go around. Uh, we'll go clockwise on my screen here. So, Jeremy, really quick. Number one, are you pro or against Universal DH? And then secondly, do you have any opinions about how this affects the Royals um, in the immediate future? So I am pro Universal DH. Uh, the, the rule difference between the leagues was always just, at least as long as I've been a fan, has always just been kind of weird, like, why are we bothering with this? Everything else is the same. Interleague play has been a thing since before I started watching. It was just silly. Um, and the, I mean, the only thing we're losing really is like the Bartolo Cologne home run scenario. Right. And one of the reasons that was so cool was it was so incredibly impossible. And you know what? We've got that on video. Just, just go, you know, Google Bartolo Cologne home run. You can watch it. You don't need to see anybody else hit a home run. You got it. You got that one. That's all you need. Um, so yeah, I don't really expect this to impact the Royals much. Um, it means they don't have to do all kinds of shenanigans when they play, uh, interleague play and they go to the, the minor league parks. They don't have to Kinders Morales does not suddenly need to play in right field. Uh, so that removes some strategy that was always kind of weird. Um, the double switch might be missed a little bit. It's kind of a, a baseball classic baseball idea, but again, the American League wasn't doing that much anyway. And heck, the Royals, with the way they DH Salvador Perez and make sure he plays in every game, um, they still do double switches sometimes. So uh, it could still happen, and, and it'll be a fun little kind of trivia tidbit to bring up when it does. I've always even been a fan of expanding the DH so that you can rotate players through the DH in the middle of the game. Like in football, if, if Travis Kelsey lines up at tight end or wide receiver or quarterback, he doesn't have to exit the game. And I know it's way different, but like think about the, the movement that every other sport has in positions. A shortstop can play second base, first base, catcher, third base. He can move all around, but we can't bring him out of the game for an inning. Um, let's say that, you know, Salvador Perez rolls his ankle in the eighth and he can't catch. He thinks he can hit, but he can't catch. We're going to we, we're gonna make a rule that you can't, let Cam Gallagher, who's the DH that day, right? Swap positions. And I, I don't know. I, I think there should be even further expansion of the DH. So I'm with you. I am pro universal DH. 
Max, I want to hear your opinion. Number one, pro or anti-universal DH? Number two, does this impact the Royals right away? Yeah, I'm I'm the purist. I like I think baseball is better when there's a diversity of approaches, and you know you have teams that you know the long ball teams that have you know rely on speed and pitching and defense. So I I've always liked the that there's one league that has a DH that has kind of a more grip it and rip it approach in the American League, and then you have the inferior National League who has bunting and pitchers hitting. Uh, and I think I don't know. I always I I grew up that way, and I, maybe that's why I like that approach because. I think the National League is like the only league that doesn't have a DH. You know, college level, they use a DH. Japan, they use a DH. Uh, the minor leagues obviously uses a DH. So it, maybe it was, you know, it's 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 something that's run its course. But I always like the different approaches. Uh, yeah, I, I did tweet that, you know, maybe this opens up some market, uh, a market for Carlos Santana. I'm still a little skeptical. I mean, he did. He was pretty terrible terrible second half and it may be one of those things where he kind of has to re uh, establish his value you know get off to a, a good start but you know it I, what i was surprised with is Heyman said this this could apply in 2022 which all everything i'd read before that said no probably 2023 because teams need a year to prepare but if it happens now well then you know there's going to be a free-for-all whenever this lockout ends and teams are going to be there's going to be a mad dash for free agents. And then, you know, teams are going to be left over and they're going to be like, well, what do we do at DH? And we can, maybe we'll give, you know, some triple A guy, quad, quad A guy a chance, which is probably what I think most teams will do. But there could be some team that says, okay, well, you know, if the Royals pay all the salary pretty much, we'll, we'll take on Carlos Santana for nothing. The Misha, so the, the organization that sanctions Missouri high school sporting events, implemented a rule last year where now, if you want to make your starting pitcher the DH, you can do that. So when your starter exits the game, that player is still hitting for the pitcher. So if if you wanted to combine the two rules, this is an easy rule. We we found it to be really easy and really effective in high school level. Shohei Otani starts the game, hits for himself, but is also the DH. So that when you pull Otani from the game, he doesn't lose his right to hit. He can keep hitting and you don't have to move him to right field. So it's player safety. It's saving his arm. It's also allowing him to be the DH when he leaves. Um, so again, even if we're talking about pro or anti, there, there are ways to mend this, right? There are ways to combine these two things. Um, and, I, and I do think there's a lot they can still do with the rule. Either way, Sean, I want your opinion on this. Uh, go ahead. Yeah, I'm pro universal DH. Uh, you know, I think I think the DH really only exists for – NL fans to be stuck up about the double switch and say, you know, oh, look at this fancy thing we've got, but it's it's junk. It's junk science. Uh yeah, no, I I'm very pro DH. Um, you know, pitchers had a negative 22 WRC plus this year. A negative 22 WRC plus this year. Uh in case you didn't hear me, negative 22. Um, and so they're just they're god awful hitters. And it's 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 nothing to their um doesn't ding them right they they focus so much on pitching and everything that there's no reason they also need to focus on hitting as well so i'm super pro universal dh i'm very excited to say back in my day um you know we one league used to have a dh other didn't but uh yeah i think it'll be great and for the royals opportunities i mean i think too you know you're probably going to see more like dozier um getting a little bit more time ryan o'hearn is just got even more safe now potentially uh being on the roster but i think it also clears up a little bit the royals um, sort of middle middle field log jam. Um, I think you could now see, you know, there was a lot of thought, well, where do you put Mondesi and Merrifield and Lopez and Witt Jr., right? Well, now I think you can maybe have a little bit more Witt Jr. at DH at times. Um, Merrifield could even DH a bit. I mean, I think it actually opens up now a little bit more opportunity, and I think the Royals would sacrifice Santana or some Dozier or O'Hearn ABs um, to to fit in, you know, Witt Jr. Um, ABs. There's a... There's a tweet I want to read to you, Sean, um, and maybe you saw this earlier today. Speaking of – Be on Twitter? On- no, I'm never on Twitter. <laughs> so moving on from the DH, staying in, this, in the CBA, um, from Craig Goldstein, starting in 2022, every Major League Baseball team will receive a guaranteed $60.1 million via national TV deals. This um, averaging out the money from the life of those deals. Um, so, and then he also implies that every known contract, I think the Royals signed one for what, $50 million with Bally Sports or something like that. So every baseball team will get a $110 million check to begin the year at least. 
um, from their local contract and from Major League Baseball. Sean, I don't know what that number looks like right now. I know the Royals get like 50 a year from Bally Sports, but what does that number look like right now in context? Do you know um, that the Major League Baseball is sharing with their teams for TV distribution every year? Yeah, so that's like a number that's not really known. I mean, like really the only document, I mean, shoot, I think it's like that Mariners, it's the Marlins, someone else, maybe the Rangers, uh, like, gosh, 15 years ago, even 10 years ago, uh, that's been leaked some financial numbers like that number. And those are huge. I think the Marlins, I have a whole article about it. I'd have to reread it, but it basically, the Royals, if I recall correctly, and I'm, you know, I should know because I wrote it, but it's been a few years. Um, I think it was like the Royals were already at 80, 80 million or 90 million. I want to say before they even like sold the ticket. Right. Um, so, and that was using numbers from like 2003, 2004. Um, so yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's going to be the same in the sense of, uh, teams will cry poor, even though they're not. Yes, some teams are more wealthy than others. Um, but as we've seen revenues explode, um, not just in you know MLB, but NFL, um, you know, the Packers have public books. So that's kind of nice. So we can see how much they make and they make gobs and gobs of money. And so you think even the MLB being the lesser sport still makes 60% of that revenue, 70%. Um, you're, you, can, you can certainly imagine teams getting revenue sharing from not only the MLB, from the luxury tax paying team, or not luxury, the the, the market revenue sharing teams, um, tens and twenties of millions of dollars of that. So, I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if the Royals are making a hundred million uh, before they sell a ticket, give or take. Um, and I, I think, I, I I don't know if they're going to spend it. I don't know if it, all clubs are going to spend it, but it's certainly a good time to be an MLB team um, from a revenue perspective. Yeah, oh, well, I take that back. If they have games, it, the revenue will be cut a bit in the next few weeks. But outside of that, any other year, it's good to be an MLB team. Well, let's let's hold that for hold that thought just a second, um, really quick. I want to work back in reverse order here. So, Sean, I'll start with you. Based on the information we have, where every team's going to get at least a hundred million every year just from TV deals. That doesn't include revenue sharing teams. It doesn't include all the other things we talked about. Are you in favor of a salary floor in Major League Baseball? Yeah, so I really like the NBA's model of um, uh, a cap and a floor. And functionally, and someone correct me if I'm wrong on this, but I think functionally the way it works is that if teams don't spend up to the floor, they, they have to. Um, the money goes to – I forget where the money goes, but I think it goes to the players on the team still. So it doesn't matter. So uh, effectively, the teams um, – always have to spend, you know, pretty much at the cap. Um, I, I'm definitely pro floor in that sense. Um, I'm from a cap perspective, I go back and forth. I think that it should be unfiltered, right? You want players to receive as much revenue as possible, but the trade-off is yes, there are teams that could certainly spend a lot more um, than other teams um, just by nature of revenue. So that's why I do like the idea of the cap, um, some sort of cap. Uh, but yeah, a floor, a floor in some capacity, just like how the NBA does it, I think is is a great model. What do you think a reasonable floor would be in your opinion? Yeah, I don't know. That's a tough one. Um, you know, uh, gosh, I was also thinking just kind of in line of thought as well is uh Oh man, now I'm just blanking on what I was thinking. Uh, yeah, so I think a floor, like a, I would say like 150 million, give or take, um, maybe even like 140, but certainly um, upper upper hundreds. The the Pirates spending 32 million bucks or whatever they're spending is just it's just outrageous. Uh, there's there's no other word to say it other than it's just it's it's it, it's it's a functionally broken way to run a baseball team. And I'm I'm more than maybe anybody out there thinks that teams should spend dynamically and spending when they're in a position and higher up on the wind curve, but spending $32 million, spending what, you know, Carlos Correa is going to make in in eight months on your entire roster is, is just, it's just outrageous um, to the point to where I think you should take the nuttings ownership away from them. Um, so, uh, but I think a floor in the upper mid one hundreds, I think makes sense to me. And I'll point hey, out, yeah, you, go ahead, you talk about the NBA. Yeah. Talk about the NBA. Their, their, their floor is 90% of the cap. So in baseball, uh, the, the luxury tax threshold effectively serves as a soft cap right now. That's $214 million. In baseball, that would mean the floor would be $192 million. So you can see a lot of a lot of small market teams would probably be against that. But I, you know, I, I was against a, a cap for a long time, uh, and the union's against it 
because they don't, you know, you know, they're against the cap for obvious reasons, but they don't want a floor for the for because that's tied to a cap. Um, and I was against it for a lot of reasons for 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 many years, but it's come to a point where the the luxury tax effectively serves as a cap. And if teams are smart enough now to kind of work around that and not go above that number, then I think it stands in the best interest of the union to get teams to spend up to that level and and increase some revenue sharing uh, and get probably a fixed number of of percentage of revenues. Because right now they are opposed to that, whereas the NBA and, and NFL um, players get a certain percentage. They have, they have to get a certain percentage of the revenue. So yeah. um, I, I've kind of shifted my position on that over the years. That's And I agree. That That's what I was thinking of. Thank you for bringing that up, is that, yeah, that's the trade-off. And I think that's a that's a very important trade-off in that the, the reason that they NFL and NBA have a cap is because they get, they get split revenue sharing. It's like 48 49%. They, I mean, they get a defined number of revenue. The MLB doesn't obviously because they have no cap and it's like some, uh, I think it's like 34% or like it's a very, very low number relative to the NBA and NFL. Um, And so they can, they could even, you know, theoretically implement a a cap and still get, you know, billions more in revenue from, or excuse me, millions more in revenue sharing from it. It sounds like, yeah, we have the luxury tax or we have a hard cap now. Oh, you know, this stinks, but no, actually, you could actually pick up a bunch of money um, by defined revenue splits uh, like the NBA and NFL have. I think the argument for a salary floor and cap is the Cincinnati Bengals. You have one of the worst teams in football a year ago on their way to the Super Bowl, which is part of why this the NFL is so popular, is you can turn your franchise around in a year. And that doesn't mean the other teams that they were competing with aren't still going to be really good next year. They're going to be just fine. They have the ability to go. What the the Chiefs are going to be able to create like sixty million dollars in cap space, the snap of a finger. Like there there are so many ways around this that I think people forget when we're talking about a salary cap, right? And sometimes even the players to an extent. It's not like these leagues with a salary cap are all of a sudden not paying players, right? Mom's got half a billion dollars. Like what are we talking about, right? So. I do think there's an argument for it. Jeremy, I want to get your thoughts really quick. Hold on. Yeah, I just want to say oh, real quick, yeah, the, the argument against the salary cap, though, is the Cincinnati Bengals because <laughs> they were a team for decades that made no effort to get better at all. <laughs> they were just run by a terrible owner in Mike Brown who really showed no interest in betting, making his team any better. And, part, you know, that's what that's kind of the downside of revenue sharing and a salary cap is that, Teams don't have to try hard. I mean, you know, in the NFL, they generally do. So I think that mitigates that argument a little bit. But that, I, the I, baseball I think that, that does, there's a, like a free rider problem a little bit. With Well, and and so like Jeremy said, I, that doesn't necessarily mean all the baseball teams are trying hard. Like I I, I also think there's there are elements to, to baseball where some teams feel like, you know what, it doesn't, you know, we're going to make X amount anyway. Um, and, and so I know what you're saying, Max, but I also think there's, I think one of baseball's biggest problems right now is the tanking and you don't even have like the, the Joe Burrows, the, you know, the Tua's, the Herbert's, the, you know, the guys that are worth tanking for, like when the, when it came out that the Dolphins owner was paying Brian Flores to lose, like the unfortunate circumstance the NFL has built itself is it is more valuable to lose than it is to win. If you're not going to win X amount of games, like, I know the leagues are like, oh, my God, how could you do that? It's like, well, then incentivize your teams to win. And right now they're incentivizing teams to lose. Your incentive is be so good you can win it all or lose so many games that you can then turn around and profit off of that um, more quickly. So we'll come back to that as well. Jeremy, really quick, salary floor, yes or no? And if it's yes, uh, give me a number that you think is reasonable. Um, I just want to piggyback real quick on that and say, yeah, the – the in the NFL, you don't have to try as you, you don't have to try hard. You can lose whatever you have an incentive to lose for those draft picks. But in MLB, uh, the difference is that in the NFL, you still have to spend. A, I believe the NFL has a salary floor. I could be wrong. Um, but if not the NFL, then the NBA has that salary floor that says, listen, if you don't, you, you're, you're going to have to pay this about no matter what. So if you're going to try and lose, you still got to pay your players. People still got to get paid. And right now the pirates, the reds, they're not paying people. They decided they want to lose and they're decided they're not going to pay anybody. And the, and the players just don't get paid and the owners just take home all of that money. Um, so I'm definitely pro floor. I'm actually pro cap also. Um, 
I, I'm obviously extremely pro player uh, compared to a lot of baseball people. Um, but where I come in on the pro cap is I actually think it adds uh, a kind of competitive uh, element to the sport where we talk about these contracts, right? Oh, uh, you know, the Royals wasted this so much money on Carlos Santana, right? And does that really hurt them? I mean, it hurts them in the sense of the owner is only willing to spend a certain amount of money, but they theoretically could spend as much as they want and no one will stop them. Um, so, but in a, it becomes your scouting becomes more important in a salary cap game where, Oh, you spent that money. Well, now you don't have that money to spend on somebody else. You can only go so high. So I actually really like that aspect of it. I think it gives you another area to really focus on uh, improving your team. And it's something uh, you talked about the chiefs, the chiefs have done very well in building, not only a very talented roster, but they've done so in a way that allows them a lot of cap flexibility, which gives them a further advantage. I am very much pro salary floor and adamant that it should be a thing. I don't know that I'm willing to go as high as like where Sean's at, but I think if they implemented a salary floor where like teams are fined and, and lost draft picks, if their salary in any given year isn't $90 million and then anything from 90 to like, let's say 110 or 80 to 120 or somewhere in there, wherever your floor sits, the next 30 or 40 million to like 120 is based on like, like incentives. So any player who gets 500 plate appearances is guaranteed a bonus. And that bonus comes out of whatever that next, right? So you have a, a hard floor of like 80, 90 mil, and then a, a soft floor of like 120, where the rest of that is bonuses distributed to the players who are actually playing in the games, regardless of how well they do. If you run, um, you know, Jeremy Guthrie out there for 220 innings of bad baseball, every inning he gets is more money that he's guaranteed in that soft pool. Now, if you eclipse that soft pool, if you've got $150 million payroll, you ain't got to worry about it. You're there. You've reached that 120 mil. You don't have to give out any of those incentives. But if you're only going to hit the hard cap of 90 mil, then we're going to guarantee you're going to pay 30 mil, but at least that will be done through incentives. Now, I know there's a lot of problems with that. I know that you know teams start to you know cheat their, their payroll potentially based on who they think they're going to pay anyway. So I know it's not perfect. I'm also not an economist or a lawyer arguing for the CBA. So I do think there are some ways they could work it in um, like a really like a hard floor of you're not going to pay an entire team less than $90 million. Um, but I, I do think there's ways to get creative in that. So we're talking about tanking um, a really quick as we go back around, uh, we'll start with max this time, max scale of one to 10, how big of a problem do you perceive tanking right now in major league baseball and give me one of your favorite solutions that you've seen just one, one solution for the current problem in tanking. Well, I think what they're talking about, is kind of an interesting solution. So they're, they're talking about reforming the draft to institute a lottery of sort. And then the owners have a, a proposal where I think it's the, the top three picks would be subject to a lottery. The players want to do it or the eight top eight picks are subject to a lottery. And then the, the, the interesting, I think, wrinkle to that is the players want to propose adding incentives where te- small market teams that either reach 500 or make the playoffs get added draft picks. So that's kind of an incentive to um, to win and also, you know, maybe helps make it more sustainable for small market teams to win. So I like I like that reform. I think um, I think having a draft lottery would help. It probably wouldn't end the practice of tanking because uh, like Sean kind of alluded to, you know, the draft is kind of a crapshoot a little bit. It's no guarantee of anything. There's no Joe Burrow out there that's going to turn your franchise around in one year. So um, I still think you'll see teams do that unless there's some sort of salary floor. Uh, but I do think that is an interesting, interesting idea and, and a way to at least um, take away some of the incentive to lose games. Sean, go ahead. Yeah, I mean, I <laughs> sorry, Max, I really hate that idea that. The, that, that kind of made it out on Twitter a little bit. Not your idea, Max, but I'm not you're not making saying you came up with it. But yeah, I saw that. It's just like some teams just stink. Like it's not their fault they stink. They just stink. Like I hate I hate punishing a team 
that I mean, like the Royals, I forgot, I blank on the year 2008 or whatever it was, seven that uh, Gilmash got signed, right? Like the Royals tried to give it the biggest contract in team history. They just stunk. I mean, there's, sometimes you just can't do anything about that. And like buying a bunch of players isn't always going to change that. And it just becomes to me like a, a vicious cycle of like, we want to reward the teams to make the playoffs and finish above 100. Great. You know, those teams are they're the Yankees, they're the Dodgers. They're the teams that have a ton of resources, have really great scouting departments, have really great, um, you know, analysts. And like, they're just freaking good teams. Like, you know, and it's, I don't think that we need to incentivize the Yankees to keep spending a bunch of money, keep having arguably the best player development system out there. I mean, like the solution to me is like focus less on the wins and losses um, and have something that makes the draft, makes the draft order less predictable uh like like a lottery um i think that's that's a really good start uh something that you know a a one or two i mean we saw it with in the nfl we saw when the jets beat the raiders last year i think it was like jaguar fans loved it and jets fans like oh no we won a game it's like it's 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 needs to get away from uh gosh from stagnant kind of draft orders doing something dynamic like a draft lottery i think that's a lot better personally than tying um uh, you know, rewarding good teams for being good. So, uh, sorry, Max. I, I, I didn't want to point it at you, but yes, I saw that out there and that was just like, ah, I, that one really got me pretty deep. Jeremy, any thoughts on tanking? Um, it bugs the heck out of me. I hate it so much. Uh, the, we're paying to watch teams compete, right? And when a team says, even if they say, you know, we'll compete in the future because we're tanking now, like you're you're saying we're not going to compete right now. And it, uh, why am I why am I paying for that? Because I'm supposed to be paying you to compete, to to watch you compete. And so I really hate it. Um, my kind of proposal is is probably way too extreme. Will never happen. Pie in the sky is is that salary floor we were talking about earlier, tied with. I would do full revenue sharing um, because I want to take away any excuses where any team says, "Oh, you know, we get outspent by the Yankees." Well, guess what? You have exactly as much money as the Yankees. Uh, you can't make that complaint anymore. Um, and I'm not entirely opposed to expanding the playoffs either. Uh, make it easier to get in. Um, so instead of looking at it and going, oh, well, we're, we're probably like a 500 team. Uh, might as well give up and go f- tank and find a draft pick. You say, oh, we're about a 500 team uh, because there's enough playoff teams. If we just try, if we just add one or two pieces, we, we might make it, you know, something breaks our way. So I, I like incentivizing teams to think playoff potential uh, as opposed to currently the system says, if you're not at, if your team isn't at a certain level, you're not going to get there. You're not close. So you might as well give up. And I'd, I'd rather see it be closer. Yeah. Can I chime in real quick? I, I think that, I think that the solution isn't both of these things. I, I don't think it forward progress to have a salary floor plus like a, a, an incentivized draft system. I think, I think if either the two, the salary, the salary floor can help because I think if you implement the salary floor, um, you've got a team like the Pirates who, you know, would be $100 million below the floor, but they would have to get up there, right? So worst case is they are buying free agents and, you know, improving their team a bit. Or sorry, that's the best case. Worst case is that the players are getting paid. Yeah, that maybe they stink. Yeah, maybe the Pirates are only going to win 50 games, but at least like the players are getting rewarded. And I think that's ultimately kind of what drives a lot of our kind of collective, you know, I say we root for the laundry, right? Um, but some of us root for the players. I certainly root for the players. Um, and so at least the players on the 2006 Royals are, are getting paid fairly well, as opposed to, you know, making league minimum and their owners just being cheap. So I think a salary floor of any of the two options are, is the better. I think that could be more rewarding than, you know, rewarding the Yankees for being good. Another I, quick idea, and, I, and Sean, I thought you were going to bring this up because I think you've, you've pushed for this in the past, is uh, abolish the draft. Uh, you could just get rid of the draft, assign uh, draft bonus pools, uh, you know, limit how much teams can spend on the dra- on, on amateur players, but just say, and but say, okay, the worst team gets X amount, um, and then the you know, second worst team gets a little less, and then just say, okay, sign whoever you want, 
um, instead of subjecting it, although the amateur yeah. players are draft. Yeah, maybe yeah. that uh, you know, maybe teams still want to get that large draft pool, but maybe that uh, lessens some of the incentive as well to. to take yeah, it. and my thought on that was always: you go further than just abolishing the draft too. You combine the the draft, the now abolished draft, with July the July second signing period, right? So you've got you know the Royals have fifty million dollars in, in draft pool money. Do they they don't do they have to use it all? No, they'll be shamed if they don't. But if they use forty million of it, they can either go buy Bryce Harper um, as a prospect, or they could go buy uh, Jesus Montero as a prospect, right? Whoever they want, wherever they want to spend that capital, they can do that. I think that's uh, uh, I, to me, obviously, it's, it's I proposed it. I think it's a good idea. Uh, but yeah, I think that's I, I think that that is a good way to to spread it out. Unfortunately. Uh, high schoolers and college players and July two prospects aren't part of the union. So they're going to get shafted. Uh, so I think it's a good idea, but unfortunately nobody's looking out for those guys uh, because you know, they're not in the MLBPA. The current playoff format. I'm, I'm drawing a huge blank. It's 10 teams, right? Yeah. Okay. Three division winners, two wild cards. So I'm a fan of expanding the playoffs to whatever your favorite expansion format is. Um, and then once the playoffs are expanded again, to whatever your favorite format, it doesn't matter. Having draft pool incentive bonuses for every five games you win above 70. So let's say the the Royals, we, we don't think are going to make the playoffs this year, but they win 79 games. Will they get a 1% or a, 1.5% bonus on top of whatever their draft pool is. Let's say it's $11 million. They get a 1.5% bonus on top of that for winning 79. You got to 75. Here's an extra 1.5%. You win that 80th game. And now you get an extra 1.5. That's a 3% bonus on top of your draft pool. You win 85 and don't make the playoffs. And we're going to add 4.5% of your draft pool on as a bonus to give you that extra draft pool. That way you don't have to mess with the order. But if you're a team picking, 14th 15th in the draft now instead of moving you up in the draft to get one extra player we're going to give you an extra four hundred fifty thousand five hundred thousand dollars whatever that number ends up looking like um and you're going to get to take that money and and use that on on a player or on players and and maybe you don't count compensation picks into that you just take the first second third fourth fifth sixth ninth tenth round picks and, and take that bonus pool and add bonuses onto it but if we can incentivize with cash, hey, here's some extra money that you have to spend on a player into winning, then I think, you know, everybody, obviously not the owners, but everybody else wins. Um, obviously, there, again, there are some wrinkles to that. It would have to be ironed out. But um, my favorite thing that I've kind of seen and, and added and come up with is, is adding draft pool money for wins for non-playoff teams. That way you incentivize yeah. the chase at the end of the year instead of, ah, it's September, we're seven games out. Let's, let's not worry about it. You incentivize the, the last game of the year, because that might be the difference between 84 wins, 85 wins, and that extra hundred thousand dollars or whatever that may be. Yeah. I think, I I think making sure it's not uh, playoff teams is a good wrinkle in it, a a positive wrinkle. I think the only issue with that is like, you know, one, Teams might not spend it. I I don't I I don't know, and I, I this is totally off the top of my head, but I don't know if teams uh, if tanking is solved or if teams care much about how much money they have in their pool. In the sense of that's never stopped them necessarily under the old system. To be clear, uh, from drafting kind of who they wanted in the first round. In that sense of like, oh hey, uh, you know. Team number 10 has $2 million, but team 14 has $2.5 million. Well, team 10 can still take the guy. It's not going to stop them. Uh, you know, and once they've, once they've been selected, they can't be selected again, right, um, until the next year. So I think that, yes, I, I like that idea. I, the, the good wrinkle of it is obviously the non-playoff teams. I think you could definitely see some fighting. My only concern is like, well, that doesn't stop a team from taking the same person, right, a few picks earlier anyways. Uh, so that's where you think you would also need a little bit of the, dyma- the, the dynamic draft slot. Uh, but, yeah, I really like the idea of the non-playoff teams. I think that that has to happen. Otherwise, you're just, again, rewarding the Yankees or the Dodgers. For sure. There was another idea that the, the, it came up in the NHL kind of along those lines, but it was taking um, – so all the non-playoff teams, the day – it's it was counting how many wins do you get the day after – the day – from the day you're mathematically eliminated from the postseason. So 
the bad teams would have an advantage because they get eliminated earlier, uh, but the good teams, you know, win more games. So it would be a close race, a little bit of a closer race. First of all, when I first started, I was like, oh, that seems kind of cool because, you know, you're incentivized to win. But, you know, more I think about it, it's like, well, our, you know, our team's going to be like trying to win that hard in September. They got called. Yeah. So I don't know. There's that, that's probably a little too out there, but that's another interesting uh, wrinkle that, that was at least proposed in the NHL. Well, some teams just stink. I, I, th- I think I think a lot of people miss this, that some teams are just bad. Like, it's like, you know why they're eliminated from the playoffs early? Because they stink. <laughs> I mean, it's like, you know, if they were a better team, they would be better. So it's for me, it's tough to think like, oh, it's July or whatever. It's August 10th. We've now been eliminated. Like, oh, let's now be good. It's like, well, you should have probably been trying to make good before August 10th. So I think that's something that really gets lost in the conversation is <laughs> some teams are just bad. <laughs> I don't know. I want to get one more thought on the CBA before we move on to something non-CBA related, unless anybody has something they want to bring up. Uh, really quick, uh, Jeremy, how many games do we play this year in Major League Baseball? Uh, let's see. They're talking now. Numbers are moving. Um, I think even if they delay the season, they're going to try and get that 162 because once you take that, once you lower that number, people look back at that differently um, than they do. And they say, Oh, the, the, the lockout, the, the negotiations, whatever caused us to lose baseball games. Whereas if they can just delay the season, but still have that 162, it's not as obvious looking back at it in history. Um, and I feel like, fans will will have less of an argument and i don't know how much this matters but fans would have less of an argument of of uh, uh i can't continue watching baseball because they keep losing games over these labor negotiations so i think i think we're going to see 162 i think it just makes everybody look better um even if they have to delay the season a little bit and i don't think that it's going to be like a month into you know we're not gonna see baseball not start until may or something so i it would be delayed by a week or two probably and just go from there max so i i'm an optimist and, and i could be way off on this uh but you know when i see in the news you know oh doom and gloom like oh things didn't go well in the hearing okay both sides have a real vested interest in you know negotiating through the press that things aren't going well because they want to get the other side to move off their position. And so, and when you look at what they're actually arguing about, it's not that they're not that far apart. This isn't like 1994 where like the owners have to have a cap and the players do not want a cap or won't take a cap. It's like, okay, should the luxury tax be 214 million or should it be 245 million? Well, there's probably a number in between those two that they can probably both live with, you know, like how should we compensate uh, arbitration uh, players before they hit arbitration? You know, should we do it for, players in year two or should we uh should we only keep with a super two you know there's they're they're not that far but there's a gray area that they can find some middle ground so i think players will be in spring training by the end of this month i think spring training will be a little bit shorter i think we're gonna find spring training doesn't need to be six weeks long uh and and i think we'll have a, a regular season that's that's the same as always but like like i said i'm optimistic john yeah, Max, I think he raised a really good point. I think I think we saw with the NFL where people like, you know, we don't need, I forget whatever it was, four games. Like they go, oh, yeah, we don't need this long warm-up, right? Um, now I think some players, I think pitchers will disagree. I feel like I've heard pitchers say they do need a little bit of ramp-up. Um, but, yeah, I think, I think we'll all realize that spring training can be shorter. Um, I think 150, 150 games is the is the sweet spot for the over-under, like if you had to make a bet. Um, I, I, and then I, I would take the over. Uh, but I think about 150 for, you know, just my off-the-top-of-the-head thought. But that's probably about what I think I would say. There's 150 games. I'm going to cheat and say that they're going to play the full number of games in the new CBA. Because I think there's a good chance. There's only six – I see. There are six months in the Major League Baseball season. Just getting one extra day off every month would go a lot further than I think people realize. And one thing that's not being talked about and by the media that I – I don't know why I think this. I just – I get the feeling that maybe it's still alive. It's knocking off six games from the season. And we're just going to play 156 from now on or 154 or 158 or 160 or whatever the number looks like. Um but I don't think they missed time. And, and maybe that starts in 2023 because they've already released tw- the 2022 schedule. So maybe they play the full thing this year. 
But I think there's a really good chance we start to see momentum towards just taking like a handful of games away to build in a a full, a shorter full season. So I think this year, I think it's very likely they play 162. The owners a lot of times strike me as like parents in these negotiations where it's like they have something the kid wants. They're going to let him have it anyway, but let's see if we can get the kid to clean his room. Can we get can we get Johnny to clean his room or take out the trash or do the dishes before we let him have an Oreo? Like we were always going to let Johnny have an Oreo. It's just like can we leverage this anyway? And the players at the, at the moment, I don't really know what the players have that they're really just okay getting rid of without a ton in return. And I think the owners have a lot more of that just by the nature of being billionaires. Um, I think expanded so, playoffs is that for the players. Yeah, I, I think they I think they they like it. I don't think they want it as badly as the owners do because the owners make a lot of money off it, but they're willing to, players are willing to go along as long as they get something in return. Yeah. And that's their biggest negotiating chip. So they've got to hold on to it as long as they can. Let's talk the real solution, the real player saving solution here. Shorten the games to seven innings. There's there. They used to play baseball until you score a certain number of runs, you win like, you know, back in the 1870s. But if you, if you, if you shorten it to seven innings, you will then have cut 36 games worth off a year per team uh, of baseball. Save a lot of bodies. I'm just saying seven innings, not innings is pretty long. Which is a, <laughs> we'll see complete games again. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Anyway. Not, not a fan people, of the seven inning game. People are already pitching so much of a tantrum over the seven inning doubleheaders that I'm pretty sure that they're like on it. their way to your house right I now. I like to, this. To murder no, you. Seven inning doubleheaders, I really do think they should stay. That is yeah. like borderline player safety and it's not something like like if you're if you're a major league baseball team well i guess you could say player safety in a, in a sense of you're a, if you're a team not wanting to cancel a rain out because of the double header that would ensue and you didn't want to lose those innings so maybe maybe it goes both ways but it's like i don't i don't the seven inning double headers are, are a good thing but on a regular basis um yeah i don't that. I do not get those complaints at all. I've heard that like the baseball writers really love it. And I know I am a baseball writer, but as, as just a fan, I don't need to sit and watch 18 innings of baseball in a single day. That is a lot. There's a lot of baseball to watch in a single day and I have a life to live. Okay. So I'm the seven inning double header, I think is an excellent uh, compromise between, you know, like let, we got to have this double header. We got to play both games and let's not make it an, an overtime all day affair. Hey, I'm that, just saying if, if for the Royals, if I got short in seven innings, an East coast, Game for the Royals would be done at eight thirty our time Central. <laughs> go to bed, you know. You, you, you'd be good. Now, same thing with the West Coast. Now, you know, you would have to stay up till one a.m. sometimes. But I, I get it. It's 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 an extreme one. But hey, count me in for seven innings. Seven innings for high school tournaments, not for uh, major league baseball. Yes, to keep it at nine for me. That is that is correct. Let's um take a little bit. We got, we got to throw an ad break in. So I'm gonna throw an ad break in really quick. We're going to come back and talk about these prospect lists coming out on the other side. All right. Baseball America, baseball prospectus, both have their top 100 lists out over at Royals farm report. We got our Royals top 50 out baseball. America has their Royals top 10. I don't think baseball prospectus does prospect live. They've got their top 100 out. They've also, they've started working on teams, not the Royals fan graphs, same way started working. Not, not the Royals list yet. Um, Baseball America has the Royals with the number five ranked organization in baseball. That's down from they were 27th, 29th, 18, 13, and now five. Um, Jeremy, I'll start with you. Do you think five is – are you as confident in the Royals system and the young players they have coming as Baseball America seems to be with that top five ranking? You know – If you had asked me that question before last season, I think I would have said no. And of course they weren't ranked that high last year, but uh, I am so used to hearing about prospects. And and part of this is because the system hasn't been rated very highly uh, hearing about, Oh, here's this next guy. He's going to be awesome. And then he's nothing. Christian Cologne was like the top position player prospect. I think at one point, um, and then he comes up and he gave us two awesome 
uh, playoff moments. Always remember him. Always thank him for that. He should never buy another beer in Kansas City. But he wasn't a particularly good player. Uh, you know, Johnny Giavatella is another guy who comes to mind. Everybody wants to see him. Can he help the team? And he's like the best prospect anyone could think of. And he's just not very good. And then the pitching stuff. I mean, we've gone over pitching stuff. They, they've had pitching prospects and they all flame out. And then last year we had Brady Singer, uh, Chris Bubich, Jackson Kowar, Daniel Lynch, all made or all pitched. And then we had some other guys. Um, I cannot remember everybody's names. There's just too many. John Heasley, um, Angel Zerpa, uh, you know, just a bunch of guys that came up and at least flashed something. You know, um, the, in the past, I feel like the Royals would take those four pitchers at the top of that draft, that 2018 draft, and you would be amazingly lucky if one of them turned out to be a bullpen piece. Um, and now at least three of them look like uh, at least back end starters, you know, uh, there's, and there's still room to hope for them to, to grow into even more. Um, so that's, I can see why you'd look at that and go, okay, well, if that's who these guys are, and they've got other guys sitting back there, Bobby Witt Jr. still hasn't made his debut. Um, uh, MJ Melendez had a great year last year. Uh, Nick Prado, Asa Lacey. These are guys that, that, uh, you know, that have done that have performed well in the minor leagues that have projected well when they were drafted. Uh, I, I, it makes sense to me that the Royals would have a high ranking in the, the prospect uh, organizational prospect lists. Uh, and, and it's exciting. I mean, this is what the Royals have been aiming for, for the past few years. This is what Dayton Moore said is we got to rebuild uh, and we got to do it through the draft. And it looks like it's actually working. Max. Well, I'll defer to, to your opinion if, if, because you know this stuff a lot more than I have, than I know. But it, it strikes me that the Royals kind of have a, a donut uh, when it comes to their farm system. Of that, they have like some super studs like Bobby Wood Jr., Nick Prado, MJ Melendez. They've got some really intriguing lottery tickets, uh, kind of young guys that are kind of far away: Eric Pena, Ben Caderna, Ben Hernandez, uh, Frank Mazzucato. But the middle class, kind of, you know, the kind of double A ish, close to major league ready. You know, you've got Vinny Pasquantino, I guess you'd probably include in that. Uh, maybe Nick Lofton. There's a couple guys in there, but it's maybe not as as robust as you as kind of the organizations that are uh, in the top five. So I think that's and then I think a year from now, that could be the case. If some of these younger guys take a step forward, which several of them probably will, um, then I think that then, then you'd feel a lot better about the system. So I think I still think that's a really good spot to be in. I think there's still a lot of upside with a lot of these guys. Um, it, it's it's great to have a couple of I mean they have what three top fifty prospects by by most consensus, um, you know minor league player of the year according to Baseball America, uh, the home run leader in the minors. I mean it's a really nice position to be in. So uh, I am glad to see them kind of turn things around. Like you said, it, it was they were there was down there. The farm system was was down there. There was an interesting quote um, Keith Law in his chat today. I don't know if you saw um, had a really interesting state comment about how the Royals kind of recognized, hey, we weren't doing things very well in our minor league development and made a concerted effort to change things. So um, kudos to them for, for kind of uh, uh, making a, a course correction there. Sean, go ahead. Yeah, I think it depends on, I think it depends on your, and I've been meaning to come out of retirement and uh, right. Kind of a confidence interval kind of piece, but it depends on your confidence in what 2020, 2021, I forget what year it was, what 2021 meant. Um, do you buy into the breakouts of Melendez and Prado? Because if you do, then yes, it's a top five, top five system. Do you buy into Asalasi's better than he showed? Then yes, the top five system. Do you not buy those fully? Yeah, maybe it's like the number 10 system. Do you think that they were flukes? It's the number 15 system, right? So it depends on because I think there were a lot of breakout performances and a lot of uh, non-breakout performances or whatever you want to call. I don't want to use the word failure, but there were a lot of, there were a couple guys that didn't have a good year, right? That you expected good years out of, right? So uh, were they all short-term blips or some of them short-term blips? It just really depends on how you feel about that. If you take the optimistic approach and you think that, yeah, I mean, uh, you know, Alex Zewalt and a lot of the development team have done a great job. If, if you truly believe that, which there's no reason not to believe it necessarily, they, they seem bright. They've certainly implemented stuff. They were, you know, uh, 
at least market is one of the first teams with the, with the Rapsido. So you definitely can buy in a lot of those steps they are taking developmentally wise. Uh, but do you buy into single year performances? That's the real question. And I, I probably fall a little more in the middle. I think five's a little too high, but like 15's too low. So I think there's a little bit of a nuance there, but that to me is, is the crux of um, what you think about a lot of the performances in 2021. I think I'm actually, Max, I'm going to push back a little bit where I, I know it seems like they have a few of those like low, lower end, high ceiling flyers, but I think the strength of this organization is actually somewhere in the middle of, of the, the middle class like you were talking about. I think the, the safety of, of guys like Michael Massey, like a Nick Lofton, like a Vinny Pasquantino, a Clay Dungan, a Tucker Bradley. I mean, Tucker Bradley was a well above average hitter last year at high A. Not much of an outfielder. I mean, he's fine. He's not going to hurt you out there per se, but he's not like a gold glove winner or anything out there. Um where would he have ranked in this organization? Where would Drew Parrish have ranked, you know, five years ago? Like the 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 strides they've made to add big league contributors with Dylan Coleman, with Will Klein, with Angel Zerpa, John Heasley, like all of these guys have hit. They will all contribute at some point in the major leagues and in some capacity. I don't know what the ceiling on any of them is. Like I, I don't know who has the highest ceiling of any of those guys. But even a guy like Michael Garcia is going to contribute to the big leagues in some capacity. Maybe he's more Alcides Escobar, which I know a lot of Royals fans remember Escobar for the for the defense and for the postseason stuff, but offensively was was pretty abysmal at times in his big league career. Um, they have a lot of guys that I think can come up and contribute. And the like they just have a lot of guys like Kyle Isbell, who never really made a push for a top one hundred prospect, but also was just kind of like you watch Kyle Isbell come through the systems like that guy's going to play in the big leagues. He may not be an everyday bona fide starter, but he's going to contribute in some capacity. And they've got a lot of that. And I, and I really think the top five ranking comes from having a middle class that is strong, having some lower end guys like Ben Kuderna, who, who are going to be those flyer types and then having the top end, you know, talent. And I think, I think Bobby Witt jr. Probably carries this a bit. I mean, Baseball America is talking about like you're talking about a guy who they compared the trio right now of Julio Rodriguez, Adley Rutschman, and Bobby Witt Jr. to Otani, Vladito, and Tatis, right? I mean, they're like these are three of the best prospects we've seen in a long time. There was a guy, um, was a baseball prospectus said he submitted the um, the the best scouting report he's ever submitted for Bobby Witt Jr. Like there is admittedly a lot of weight carried to Bobby Witt Jr. that I think if you take him out of this organization, they immediately fall to like seven, eight, nine, ten. 10. Um, but having that guy, he's not going anywhere. They're not trading him. They're not going to lose him. He's going to be there. Right. So I think it is top heavy, but I think that middle class is so much stronger than it's ever been. And I think you can point to evidence of this at fan graphs where Eric Longenhagen doesn't do, a numbered list, right? Well, he doesn't have a set number for every organization like MLB pipeline does a top 30 for every org, no matter how good your 30 are compared to the Rockies 30, everybody's going to have 30 on this list. Eric Longenhagen this year did 36 Rockies prospects last spring. He had 54 for the Royals. And I think it points to the depth that they are building and continuing to build. And I think a lot of that can be pointed uh, directly at directly at the player development that Sean hinted at is they have overhauled it. They, they looked at it and said, this is not working. They threw it out the window. They brought in a whole new way of doing things. And we didn't get to see it in 2020 because of the pandemic, but I think health pandemic Nate worldwide aside, the baseball aspect of it specifically was a little bit of a blessing in disguise for the Royals because they had a whole year to wipe the slate clean, reevaluate everything they were doing bring the guys into the alt site, take them to fall instruct camps, bring them back for spring training in 2021 and go, okay, let's see how it works. If you don't have that year, I don't know that we're having this conversation right now. There's no way we're talking about a top five org, maybe not even a top 10, but having a whole year to stop playing, reevaluate your training, reevaluate your processes, I think is going to pay them more dividends than any actual minor league season could. So I'm pretty confident. I'm pretty high on it. Um, I was glad to get your guys' opinions on that just to see if I'm living in la-la land or 
if I'm if I'm grounded in reality in some capacity. But um, I do think this year is going to be exciting, and and I think it's going to be slow at first. But by August, I think most of these guys are going to be here, all playing together. This team's going to look so different. And it's going to be so much fun uh, for the last couple months of the season. I know football in this town has taken the high road thanks to Patrick Mahomes and the Royals baseball just because of the nature of the sports won't be the same for a while because of Patrick Mahomes, but rolling into the 2023 season, I don't know how we're going to contain the buzz on this team because it, I, I really believe it's going to be out of control based on what we see at the end of this year. One thing I just wanted to mention real quick as far as this farm system versus other farm systems that the Royals have had is 20, 2014 or 2015. I can't remember which year it was. Uh, the Royals uh, needed a starter. They needed a guy to come up and pitch a game, start a game. They, the, their starter was hurt. Aaron Brooks. They went to Aaron Brooks and all respect to Aaron Brooks. He is, he is finding a way to, to pitch in you know other countries he came back he's pitching for somebody else this year i think he signed a minor league deal um but he is he is not a guy that anyone was ever excited about anyone ever really wanted to see in the major leagues they were like yeah i mean he can throw pitches but is he gonna be good no um and then you know last year and the farm system is not emptied by what happened last year, but last year they said, we need a guy, Carlos Hernandez. We need a guy, uh, Daniel Lynch. We need a guy, John Heasley. We need a guy on Hell Zerpa. They just keep bringing guys in and, and they're guys who are not Aaron Brooks. Maybe they're not superstars, but they're not Aaron Brooks level guys. And there's so many of them and there's still so many left in the minor leagues. Um, that's what gets me excited about the Royals farm system right now and about their player development is that we're not down to just, oh, crap, it's Aaron Brooks and who else even do they have? It's, it's okay, here's this guy, here's this guy, here's this guy. You haven't heard of him, but he's going to be better than Aaron Brooks. And, and I, again, all respect to Aaron Brooks, but I want better than Aaron Brooks when we promote a guy. And, they, and they've definitely done a good job of doing that. And, and Dayton's been – vocal about wanting to make sure that was that way. And um, I think we're getting ready to see the the evidence of that paying off uh, really quick, Sean, any final thoughts on the night before we get out of here? No, uh, God, you stunned me. I don't know what to say. No, I, I wasn't expecting uh, a, a, a nightcap here. No, I got, I got nothing. Uh, pleasure to talk to everybody as always. Um, yeah. Uh, gosh, sorry. I, sorry. I, <laughs> sorry. I dropped the ball here. Max, any final thoughts? Um. No, I, I will. I will say. I, um, I think everyone should read your road tripping article. I enjoyed that because um, just being optimistic about there being a baseball season the summer, and and my family and I we're, we've been trying to plan our summer vacation and where we want to travel to this year. And I would like to see a road a road Royals game. I'd like to get back to traveling and being in cities again uh, because I haven't really done that the last two years. And so some interesting, you know. There's some interesting road opportunities. I think Chicago is always a good, a good easy drive, or you can always take a train. It's actually a lot of fun taking the train up there. Um, uh, St. Louis, of course, is always an easy jaunt. Um, but, but like Texas, I've never been to, to the, the Ranger Stadium, uh, either their old one or their new one. Uh, so there's some interesting road trips. You know, <laughs> you, you know, driving all out to, all the way out to the West Coast could be kind of interesting. We did that last year, actually. Um, not, not too bad. We we took stops in Utah, Colorado before ending up in angel stadium. Um, it, it wasn't, it was like American vacation, you know, like with Griswold. So, uh, but did, I would, I would recommend that article and, and maybe, uh, maybe people can start thinking about uh, going to a Royals game on the road this summer. We, my wife and I both worked for the school district back in 2020 when they canceled everything, there's no baseball, there's no school. We had, we didn't have kids at the time. So we just literally up and started driving around, made it through South Dakota, Wyoming, Colorado, and came back home. And after driving to Wyoming and back, I cannot imagine driving to the West Coast. So I, I threw that in there because if you wanted to fly from Kansas City to San Fran, there's a really cool road trip opportunity where you go from the Bay Area down to L.A. You could spend some time in California and catch like nine Royals games if you wanted to. I also realized that driving there would have been a ridiculous request of people. And I didn't want to write too much about flying 
But man, the Royals had some cool destinations this year, and they're all like crap timing. Like you could go to Seattle in April and probably catch freezing rain at the game. Arizona series is a Monday, Tuesday in the middle of the school year with no other West Coast games backing it up. St. Louis, Monday, Tuesday, Tuesday, Wednesday in the middle of the school year. No other road games around the area. Like you can't go to the Cubs next or the White Sox next and, you know, catch them that way. Boston is at the end of September. Like also, again, school has started already. It's like how how did all of these good road trip opportunities get zapped? So even the Texas road trip opportunities in the middle of the school year. So if you have kids that are in school, like that's a tough one to catch because it's in the middle of the week. So I landed, if you haven't read the article yet, I landed on a Chicago series in early August and I was grasping at straws because they really, they really just don't have a good one. Now, if the Chiefs catch the Bengals in Cincinnati on the same weekend that the Royals are in Detroit and Cleveland back to back, that would be probably your best bet overall. But even then, I mean, we're talking about banking on one random Chiefs game to be in Cincinnati. Like, I don't know. So um, we'll see. We'll see about all that. But Jeremy, uh, Jeremy, oh, go ahead, Sean. Did you hear? Did you hear the key part of that, Jeremy? Where they said the people with kids. So you and I, we <laughs> let's go. We're going to San Francisco on a Tuesday. Yeah. All right. You guys can worry about that. You and I. Let's let's pack let's our it. bags, man. I'll bring my dogs. Let's go. <laughs> Jeremy, any final thoughts tonight? Um, I just want to say uh, you brought up the Chiefs. I just want to say that as frustrating as it has been being a Royals fan, I am I'm thankful for my Royals fandom because it helps me appreciate uh, what the Chiefs have been doing um, and helps me even appreciate the Chiefs losing that game on Sunday a little bit more. Um, you know, uh, just making the playoffs is is so hugely fun for me because my baseball team never does it right so when my football team does it even if they lose hey they made the playoffs that's pretty cool um so that i'm just i'm just thankful for the the synergy there between my royals fandom and my chiefs fandom that game on sunday was the closest thing i've felt to game seven of the 2014 world series because the royals only real playoff loss in two years was that game. Now, I know they lost games. That was the only game they lost that also meant the series was over in two years of playoff runs. And I was like, when the game ended, I was just like, now what? Like the the Disney ending is Salvi hits the home run, the Royals win, right? That what, what now? It's like, oh, man, we got to wait until next year. With the Chiefs, it was like when Mahomes lost to Brady year one, it was like, oh, my God, the Chiefs made the AFC championship game. Like, we were so close. Darn it. But we'll be back. When they lost the Super Bowl, they got beat so bad. It was just like, oh, man, like, you know what? It happens. You won it last year. You got back. You lose that bad. Neither tackle were in the game, whatever. But that game Sunday was like – it was deflating because it's like, oh, man, like, you lost the Super Bowl last year. Now you don't even make it. It's like – now you got to wait a whole off season again. Like that is the closest I felt to, to the game seven of that 2014 world series. And just like the deflated feeling. And it's like, Oh no. So um, that was like crazy. In 14 and 15, did they blow any games? I can't recall any games. They Max, blew a game in the three San Francisco game series. Four. It was game four. Yeah. How they had it? the lead in that game. What, wait, wait, what, game. What, what game was it? Game four. Finnegan came in and gave up uh, like three or four runs. And then the against San Francisco game? or yeah, yeah. In San Francisco. That well, man, I don't remember that game at all. Okay, Vargas, was it Vargas, a, that wasn't a close score. Started the implosion, didn't he? After he like he thought he took ball four. I remember that. And then he I remember did. him doing freezing like this at the thing. Yeah. And then we came back out. He wasn't the same pitcher he had been. And then they went to Finnegan, who had been the playoff hero, and he blew it wide open. Yeah. But they weren't up 28-10, though. I'm saying though, like no. there was no crushing defeat, right? They uh, were up. I mean. It? Was it wasn't it like five one or something? Hang on, let me Google. It was four I must not remember lead, it then. As, as I recall, I don't okay, remember okay. exactly what the score was. That's my bad. I, I don't remember that. I'm sorry. I remember the I remember the Vargas walk, right? Um, I don't remember the crushing defeat part of it. They lost some games, right? They got smoked against. And I'll Toronto. never, I'll never forgive Joe Panic for that diving stop on what I was sure was an Eric Hosmer RBI single. They were up four one in the third mm. inning, so it was the yeah. Giants scored in the first. 
we scored four in the third, and then we never scored again, and then it was just an overall implosion. So that was really the only game they they blew, so to speak. Um, but, yeah, so my only final thought of the night is that the Kansas City Royals are paying for admission to – paying your admission, you listening. If you go down to the Negro Leagues Museum in Kansas City, the Royals will pay for you to get in. Everybody, It's free for everybody. So go down there. Take your free ticket. Let the Royals pay for it. Go experience the museum because it is – like there There are a few times in my life I've walked into a building, a setting, a room, outside somewhere. I've seen something like – I'll never forget. I was – long story. The I was in Jerusalem in college, and when I first saw the Dome of the Rock, I was like, huh, right? It's just one of those feelings. Like when I walked into the Negro Leagues Museum, Kansas City, and you and you turn the – so it's the museum part of it. You see all the cool historical artifacts, and then you walk in and you see the field with the bronze statues of the players. It was one of those feelings. It was just like overwhelmed by the history and the struggle and the, the stories that you're being told. One of the coolest feelings I've ever had, truly, honestly. I highly recommend going down there. Uh, find somebody to walk you through there and explain some stuff. They've, they've got uh, people that work for the museum that will talk to you, tell you the stories, um, and then when, again, just seeing the field and, and all the artifacts is, it's really overwhelming. And then the, the jazz museum being next door is a great opportunity to piggyback. They have a whole, the way it's set up right now, they have four different decades represented by one musician from each decade of jazz. And, uh, Charlie Parker has, has a whole thing that's set up and you can go down and, and, and learn about the eras of jazz. So that is a really cool weekend that you can go down. Um, and, and take a day, uh, visit Arthur Bryant's, go to LC's while you're down there, but the Royals are paying your way into um, the Negro Leagues Museum, so so go visit that. Gents, I appreciate your time. Thank you very much. I know we went longer than we anticipated here, but thank you guys very much for joining me. Um, we'll be back again, hopefully next week with some news. Hopefully next week we find out these teams are rolling right along. I tweeted out my prediction. I think the first spring training game is March 7th. I think they start on time, uh, but we will see. We will see. We will see. So thanks, everybody, for listening. We will see you all again very, very soon.